Hey, thanks for tuning in. I'm Abby Nuraki, and on this episode of Well, That's a Problem, a social justice podcast on everyday issues, I'm joined by my good friend and coworker, Elle Rochford. Elle is a sociology PhD student at Purdue, and among other things, she studies inequalities on social media, and so she has a lot to say about how race, class, and gender interact in digital spaces. I'm really excited to have her on the pod today because she is enthusiastic and knowledgeable, and we always have excellent conversations. So I hope you enjoy getting a sample of what it's like being friends with Elle all the time. Be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at WTA Problem, and please, please, please tweet at me to let me know what you think. And without further ado, let's get to it. Hey, y'all. I'm here with Elle Rochford. Elle, thanks so much for being here. I'm really excited to have you on the pod. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. So to kind of get us started, can you tell everyone the moment that you decided that we should be friends? So I remember it vividly because I'm a very energetic person. That is, true. And so when we met, uh, someone was asking if I could give you all my books. Yes. And I was like, of course, stranger, you can have all of my textbooks and here's my notes and here's some thoughts. And by the way, it's my birthday. Come to my birthday party. And so it was kind of a lot to throw at you as like you just had like walked in first day yeah. of grad school. You had walked over to my desk and I'm just throwing like books and sentiments and invitations out at you. And you do agree to come to my birthday party. And at the time, uh, Purdue everywhere was under construction. But the two roads that I lived on the corner of were completely torn apart. And so as I'm explaining to you, who I do not really know, how to get to my apartment, I'm explaining that you have to literally drive into the construction zone, that it's not just like a detour. You have to drive into the torn up road where there is machinery and gaping holes, and you have to literally drive through that to get to my apartment. And you were like, this cannot be correct. Right. And so I walk outside into the construction zone and I'm like waving your Subaru <laughs> into the parking lot. Yes. Um, and you literally did have to drive past kind of uh, earth movers and a gaping hole and there was no road and you did it and you came to my birthday party and I was like, well, this is my new best friend. And honestly, like that's the kind of dedication that we bring <laughs> to this friendship because I remember distinctly that I was like driving around in a, in a semi new place. You know, I hadn't been there long enough to really know my way around the major roads and like things on campus. And so I turned into a different apartment complex because I was like, well, this has to be it because there's no way that I have to drive into the construction that is not allowed. That's against the rules. And so then I remember I had to call you and I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe I have to call her. Like, I don't know her that well. Like, I'm, so I called you and then uh, you were, at, like you said, explaining, like, no, you literally have to drive into the construction. And I was like, ah. Through caution tape. And this was, this was, I had to coerce a lot of people to get to my apartment to drive through the kind of all the barriers. There was only one entrance or exit and both roads leading to that entrance were blocked off and torn apart. I actually ended up losing two tires that year because everything was torn apart. Did you get any compensation for that? Oh, no. Absolutely not. That would be a no. Right. Because that would be just too convenient. I learned a lot about myself and others. And about the cost of tires. Yep. Yeah, I learned that hardcore. Well, like I alluded to earlier... There's something specific that brings you to the pod today. So can you share that story with us? 
Sure. Um, so I study social media, but I'm also incredibly active on social media. And I spend a lot of time thinking about how social media impacts our lives and in a lot of ways is not separate from our lives. I think a lot of, especially, I say this with deep affection, older folks tend to draw a distinction between real life. And I'm, I'm using quotes and I'm talking with my hands, but realizing that that's right. not getting picked up. Right. So real life, quote, quote, versus digital life. And that distinction as a researcher and someone who uses social media is essentially meaningless. Your real life does take place online and in digital spaces and activity in digital spaces has real impacts in physical life. And so I was thinking about this topic quite a lot. And I was trying to think of like, what centering story am I going to use? And lo and behold, Uh, the universe reached out to me with this great example So I, once a week, work at a pub quiz. So pub quizzes are, you know, fabulous, like regular activities at a lot of our local bars and restaurants. But it's also just something I host once a week that's a fun thing away from research, but is still nerdy and in my wheelhouse. So I was at this restaurant and I had several incidents of just kind of blatant men being very strange to me. But kind of the pinnacle moment was a man who came in After the pub quiz, when I was cleaning up, he did not speak to me. He was not there for the quiz and so did not hear me talk, did not know that I was there as an employee, didn't hear my name or any of my announcements. He only saw my face and he was there for about 30 minutes and so had multiple occasions to walk up and talk to me. I was moving around the bar, um, kind of putting things away and taking down my stereo and AV setup. And so there were multiple kind of junctures in which he could have introduced himself to me and he did not. A few hours later, I get a series of Facebook messages from this man who I recognize from the bar. He had a very distinctive hat that he was wearing and he was wearing it also in his profile picture. And I asked him how he was able to track down my account. Right. Because he had no way of knowing my name. And he had gone through the restaurant social media page and checked out every like and kind of post to see if he could recognize me from my profile picture and if I had interacted with the page. So he was able to track down my contact information just through social media. And it was this very jarring kind of series of events that would not be possible even 10 years ago. I don't think you could have done it to the degree that he was able to do it. And so it just brings to to my mind how interactions have changed and how interpersonal politics are different now that we're all online with social media. Yeah. And like that story is a lot, but, and also like a lot less rare than we think. Mm -hmm. And also how long did it take him to message you? So when I asked him slightly horrified how he was able to track me down, he said with several smiley face emojis, it wasn't that hard. So between me being in that space and him messaging me, it took between 30 minutes to an hour. Yeah, 30 minutes to an hour is all it took for this guy to go through posts and comments and likes until he looked at every single profile and found you. Right. And and this is not having any identifiable information about me. If you have someone's first name, it becomes a lot easier. Right. Right. But he had no identifiable information other than he had seen my face and he knew my geographic location roughly an hour before he started his search. Right. 
Oh my gosh. That's so much. It's a lot. And I feel like this is, like I said, you know, only one of countless examples we could have given of creepy men finding us or doing weird stuff to us online. Well, and this is something I've spoken about with a lot of other women where um, in the past you could give someone a fake phone number and that carried with it different risks. But now anyone who knows even your first name and your rough state location can track down a way to contact you, whether that's through Facebook or Instagram, even Venmo. Venmo, uh, a lot of people don't think about as social media, but is. And, And that kind of leads me back to my research, which is what counts as social media and how do we think about it? Yeah. And it's really hard. I mean, like, you know, for us as academics, part of our, our stance on social media is we want public accounts on things so that people can find us and network with us, at least, you know, on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. But that opens us up to being more susceptible to shit like this, right? Like, right. Well, I actually got my first Twitter troll recently. Oh, do um, tell. And it's, it's this really fascinating thing as someone who studies progressive movements and the internet. And I've had this conversation with a few other scholars that do work on Twitter or Facebook or I do Instagram. But there's this kind of moment before you're being harassed on the internet as a woman scholar where you're like, is my work progressive enough? Like, you know, why aren't these white nationalists or men's rights people trolling me? Um, and, <laughs> and obviously no one wants that. I'm making lots of expressions and gestures, kind of forgetting that I'm I'm not being recorded. Sorry, video recorded. But Sorry, obviously no one wants that. Right. Yeah, no one wants that. And no um, one should receive that. Right. But it is kind of this, you know, you're doing something right based on who's trolling you. Yeah. Yeah. The the quote unquote operative population is now trolling you. Yeah. And that is that is something really calculated that I take into account when I tweet things, when I retweet things. And I'm a white woman, so I get a lot more leeway with what I say and what I do, especially as a credentialed white woman to be able to tweet things. People think I'm more objective, which is a whole can of worms that you and I have talked about multiple times. I do not believe in objectivity. I think it is bullshit. And um, I was actually reading an article about how like uh, the idea of objectivity is, and we we heard a panel speaker too who was talking about how objectivity is just like a mechanism of a white masculinist uh, discipline in a white masculinist space. Is that, um, space. Ray. Mm, follow her. her. She's so good. Yeah. And, and so there's all kinds of kind of open manholes that you can fall into with social media, researching it and being on it. Um, and so I was hoping to kind of come here and, and talk about and unpack some of those things. Yeah, yeah. So let's take a moment to kind of, so we have this this situation where people are finding you on social media and there's clearly a disconnect, I feel like in this guy's mind between, mm-hmm. he wouldn't he wouldn't come and talk to you when you guys are both in the same physical space because that was too weird or I don't, I cannot speak for what he was thinking because honestly, the way he acted, I'm like, I honestly don't know what is going on in your brain. Um, but then was like, Social media, that's something that I can do. I can stalk her online, mm-hmm. find her and message her. And somehow that's better than just coming up and saying hi to you at the place where you do pub quiz. Right. So if he had followed me to my car and reverse searched my license plate to find my name, 
I think everyone would agree that's terrifying. Yes. But there is this kind of Wild West attitude about, well, we just haven't established what social media norms are. And I'm going to disagree with that. I think we have established what those are. It just depends on who's listening. And this, I kind of have, I have a lot of thoughts. That's, yeah. that's one of my, I think, personal mottos is, well, I have a lot of thoughts about that. Honestly, I love it all. I'm happy to hear it. So yeah, <laughs> let's you. get into it. Like, yeah. What are your thoughts about um, this and social media more largely? Right. So and I also want to get into so that's not really what I what I research. What I research is kind of organized and collective behaviors online. This is more of kind of an orienting to what it's like to exist online as a person with a body. So we talk about slacktivism a lot, um, the idea that you can be active online politically, but that doesn't translate into anything real. Number one, a lot of activists would consider that pretty ableist. So not everyone can take to the streets because the streets aren't ADA compliant. So slacktivism meaning what? Uh, So slacktivism is the idea that if you're participating in politics online, that's not real activism. That doesn't have a real effect. You're sitting at home alone, clicking likes and dislikes, and you're not really participating. Because to quote unquote really participate, you'd have to be physically present wherever the... Physically putting your physical body on the line. And I think what this gets wrong is the idea that your physical body doesn't go into virtual space. Um, I am a woman and I am, I am a white young woman when I'm online and when I'm offline. And there are ways that I could mask that online. But the fact that I have a physical body attached to these handles makes a difference. Right. I mean, we attach our profile pictures to things like we definitely tweet from certain perspectives, but people come back to picturing who you are and what you look like and how you exist in physical space when they're engaging with you online. Like you said, people mm-hmm. are a lot less likely to troll us as young white women than they are to troll, say, people of color online. Right. Well, and I think the other thing that this carries forward is this this person didn't interact with me in, in physical space, but he interacted with my kind of online profile. And if you can find my name and profile, it really doesn't take much more effort to find where I physically work. You can trace my handles, even if I've de-identified them, it's pretty easy um, if you have a little bit of technological knowledge to track down that person in physical space. And that's where this kind of online-offline distinction becomes really difficult to manage. So this kind of threatening act online can translate to offline really easily and really quickly. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of up to your discretion to figure out what precautions you need. For this individual man, I don't believe, and I could be wrong, and if I'm wrong, then everyone will say, what an idiot for being wrong. But I don't believe that he's going to cause me any physical harm. But that's not true of everyone, especially these trolls that then begin following academic accounts. It becomes very easy to track down an academic handle to where they work, to what their course schedule is, right? Right. And that can have really real-world implications. Yeah. And it's like, ugh, it's stressful because the consequences and the, the, the real burden of this lack of identifying the dis- the, that there isn't a, a distinction between physical space and virtual space is carried by minorities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like white women are affected by that in different ways than than women of color, but are still, you know, forced to do that labor of thinking about am I safe online, right? Like, 
Right. Well, and I think that brings me to one of my biggest areas that I like to talk about in my research is what does it mean to be online and what does it mean to be on social media? And the answer is really different. It would be like saying, what does it mean to live in America? Well, that depends on a a bunch of things. Right. It depends on who you are. It depends on where you are. It depends on how you're engaging and how you're defining things. So if you want to talk about social media being Venmo, right, that's really different than talking about Facebook or Twitter. I look at Instagram and the things that are happening on Instagram aren't like those other platforms. And I, I think it's, it's, it sounds extreme to say dangerous to call social media one thing, but I think it's dangerous to, to act like what happens on Facebook is the same or to not distinguish. So when we say is social media helpful or harmful, I have a whole section in some forthcoming work called Boone or Barrier. And the answer is it depends. So it's one of sociologists favorite answers to questions. It depends. True, 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 true. Because it's complicated. And like you said, like, there's just a lot of factors to consider about the social positions that people occupy, what platform that they're using is, is you're expressing very different. I know one time my friend Amy Drohan, who is hilarious, she's an up and coming comedy writer. Love her so much. She was at a Fortune Themester show and Fortune like asked the audience, like, what's your favorite dating app? And she's sitting there and she yells, LinkedIn. You and I have and talked a lot about this, about how we recreate race and class divisions and hierarchies in our dating lives through like online dating apps and, and profiles and things like that as a society, but like, we don't think about the ways that those distinctions might carry into our everyday life or like the differences between like how you engage with people online. Right. Well, and I think that's, so another thing that we've talked about is kind of digital blackface, right? Yeah. And this is not my original idea. And I wish I had the citation offhand, but the idea that the internet is de-raced or de-gendered and the idea that you could go on as a person of another race, right? You could Rachel Dozow, your Twitter account, but that's super problematic for a lot of reasons. Or the idea that you would communicate solely through reaction gifts of black women, right? You're, you're appropriating black women's emotional work to convey emotions, Right. And meanwhile, perpetuating these stereotypes about black women, that they're all like sassy and, and fiery and ready to like mm-hmm. fight you and like whatever. Well, in different political campaigns, most notably, there have been several documented cases of Russians using images of black people to support certain political causes as if this isn't a white, predominantly white movement. This is a really diverse movement, but they're not including actual physical bodies and physical ideas of black people. They're using imagery in these fake accounts for the illusion of diversity. Yeah. And I think that that really paints the picture of, you know, while we like to pretend and I feel like a lot of the like advertisement for the like join this platform can be completely anonymous. You can come into these chat rooms and exist in this space with anonymity is not actually what happens and like the people that are most susceptible to a lack of anonymity are women, women of color, men of color, queer people, people with disabilities Mm -hmm. and on down the line and all the places where those identities intersect. Well, and I think it's not, it's not an accident why some platforms become known for being hostile or for men's rights activism or white supremacy. And some platforms become known 
as kind of hotbeds of maybe happy activism, right? Hotbeds of happy activism sounds kind of like a misnomer, right? But there's a reason that women's movements are really taking off on Instagram and that Instagram has a happy, upbeat kind of reputation. And it's everything to do with the design. Instagram, even if you have an anonymized handle, you still have physical pictures that tie into some kind of identity versus something like Twitter, where you might have a handle that identifies you. And then versus something like Yik Yak, which is now dead. It's a dinosaur. Um, But Yik Yak was a hotbed for really toxic talk because of the way it was designed, where there was no no kind of linking a person's post to an identity, and then it was upvote or downvote purely. So I think it's important to think critically about how social media shows support or rejection and how it does sharing, right? So all these things matter in how safe or unsafe a space it is for minorities. Mm-hmm. And that's why you see things like Twitter. There is a really thriving community, which we all kind of know about as Black Twitter, where a space has been carved out of this platform where you can kind of organize. So if there's an explicitly racist post through hashtags and retweets and mentions, you can, instead of being maybe the only minority at your university responding to this post from your university, you can include this broader community of people who are going to support you versus something like Yik Yak, which is geographically limited. If you're a minority on campus, you are not going to be able to get enough upvotes to really challenge anything um, kind of racist or sexist that's rising through that platform. And so there's a lot of research on how platform design can make a platform more or less hostile. But we kind of talk about these platforms as if, as if they're interchangeable. Mm, yeah. Well, and something else that, that comes to mind for me is when you're talking about, you know, what counts as social media or how do different platforms work is um, women video gamers. Mm. And so like, you know, I feel like social media, we think of, you know, we think of Facebook, we think of Instagram, we think of Twitter, we think of Snapchat. But when you have the ability to chat online, or like, you know, have audio recording conversations online, and video games, that is also like can also be folded into the same conversation, I feel. Would you agree with that? Or do you have a different take on that? No, I would, I would agree. And I think that's part of the trap of the internet is it's marketed as this marketplace where everyone can engage, everyone can critically engage, everyone can explore, anyone with internet access, right? So first of all, we're assuming everyone has internet access, which is its own problematic idea. Right. Uh, That's very capitalist of like portraying mm -hmm. that everyone has, you know, everyone has equal opportunity to succeed on the internet. Anyone can be seen as funny or get a trending tweet or whatever. Well, and, and so it's this idea that anyone who can have a handle can have a voice. And that's just not true. And this is going to link me back to some old school sociology. Again, pardon me, boomers. I'm saying old school, but it's like 1970s, 1970s and 80s, which is uh, Kathleen Goff and Adrian Rich who are talking about the ways in which women specifically, kind of lesbians even more specifically for Adrian Rich, but the ways in which women's power is limited and constrained. And I would go on to add further, women of color and people of color online would fit into this. And so part of this idea, and there's there's a list of eight ways, and I think on the internet you see especially kind of her last seven bullet points 
which includes the way that people are kind of bought and sold. And they're talking about, again, in the 70s of physical people and physical mm-hmm. spaces. Um, they're talking about sex work, which which thrives online. But even taking it kind of conceptually further, the idea that you can consume Black women's emotions through gifts, right? So you can take a Black woman's image and body and feelings and appropriate that for yourself, right? So there are ways in which people are given power and power is taken from them in these online spaces. And the end result is that women and minorities' movements in these digital spaces are really constrained. And because we don't really conceptualize the digital world as a, as a space. It's hard to kind of put this into a way that makes sense to people. Mm. But it's like certain people feel comfortable walking in broad daylight when the streets are crowded, right? So maybe that's your Instagram, right? Like this is a happy, oh, moderated setting where uh, if someone is screaming profanities at you, things are going to intervene really quickly. But the darker corners of the internet, right? You don't have that moderation. You don't have bright lights showing on you. You wander back into 4chan in the wrong alley and you are very quickly thrown out of that or threatened out of it. And the same with catcalling. The reason it's scary is you don't know these people and you don't know how serious these threats are. And there are enough real documented cases of physical violence that you need to take every threat seriously. Right, which is particularly true for like women video gamers. This Mm -hmm. comes up a lot. Um, I know we showed a documentary in the social department last year. Do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Oh, sure. What are you talking about? Get the, get the F out. And they, they say, you know, the the real F word, uh, get the heck out. Um, (laughs) and it's, it's talking all about, um, the experience of women online and women and women in gaming and how they are forced out through threats that are actualized and threats that aren't actualized. But even in these scenarios where it's not a threat of death or rape, right, they are made to feel uncomfortable and unwelcome in these spaces and their safety is threatened. And even people who aren't explicitly making violent threats benefit from those who do. And I say benefit from those who do in the sense that if you are always on edge, that something might escalate from, hey, you dumb bitch, to I'm going to murder you. At the first red flag, you might get out of there because it's not worth it. I love Crash Bandicoot, but I'm not going to put my physical safety on the line for it. And so in that way, these spaces become really difficult to navigate for anyone who is not a white man. Right. And you're forced to make this choice between do I continue to participate in these video games or, you know, do I just start blocking people? Do I shut down my account? Do I have to give up this thing that I love a lot or this, in the case of things like Instagram and Twitter, this thing that everyone or all my friends are doing for my own safety or my own feeling of I'm secure, like I don't feel threatened when I'm going about my daily life. Like, cause like, can you imagine like we all go on Instagram, like we start scrolling through, you know, doing whatever we go on Twitter, scrolling through to get kind of like a break from our quote unquote reality, even though I appreciate the distinction that like digital space in real life are more integrated than we give them credit. We go online and we kind of are like, yeah, just taking a break. Like you're on Instagram. You kind of just want like your happy posts. But if you're like me, I follow a lot of like social justice organizations and things like that. So my Instagram is not as happy as maybe the average consumer, but you know, and then to, to be confronted with such threats or like 
violent messages or whatever is very problematic to say the very least. It's problematic, but it's also not new. And I think that's what really strikes me. And that's why I bring in um, Rich and Goff, who are writing in 75 and 1980, is that this isn't new. This is is what every woman and minority has faced trying to exist in public. Um, The minute you start to assert that you belong in the public sphere, you're going to get backlash. And so I think what's different with the internet is, number one, we're able to link up to each other much faster and much more easily. So all of a sudden, it's not a group of women talking about their their boss who's who's abusing his power. It's the Me Too movement, right? And so what, what shocks me is that this is something that every woman and minority has faced who's tried to live their life in public as if they are entitled to space in the commons. And I think that's the interesting piece to me is the internet has made it so much easier to document and to share it and to build solidarity. Yeah, which is, I mean, really cool. And you can think of like police brutality incidents, mm-hmm. especially we, we have so much live footage of police. I mean, they're being recorded when they're brutalizing black bodies. And I think, you know, that has really made a, a change in the ability of the, the movement for black lives to really um, mobilize around these tangible events that are happening, even though local communities have known about these, you know, for decades and centuries and however long, because it's always been happening. When I think to to a much, much smaller degree, um, this this incident that I started the episode with, I posted online, I posted a long post, including some of the snap, like the screenshots from this messaging. And I got a few dozen women commenting publicly about how this had happened to them or how this made them feel. And then privately, I got messages from men who said, I don't really understand what the big deal about this is. No. Including, including my sweet, beautiful, meaning well dad was like, I don't understand And this is what's been happening is we're afraid to share these experiences in public and we share them in private. And the issue is that people on the borderline, like my dad, who needs handheld through it. And again, he's my my dad. Normally, uh, I'm an instructor of sociology. You have to pay me for me to hold your hand through things like social issues. But, you know, these conversations need to be happening in public. But not everyone uh, is physically safe enough, right, in their work, in their financial life to, to talk about things publicly. But when we are, social media can be the thing that we can use, right, to get these people yeah. who don't understand how commonplace things are right. or why things are so frightening. Mm-hmm. You know, and once I explained to my dad the kind of the levels that this person had gone to to contact me, right, Mm-hmm. And this is this is also a conversation we've had with my dad, my sisters and I, is that you have no skin in this game. You need to be on our side because you don't even know this guy. Like, why are why are you but, trying to be but, devil's advocate right, right. now? Um, so also believe people who post things online. And if you see a dozen comments from people agreeing that this is a common experience, maybe listen to that before right. you private message. That but. should mean something. Yeah. yeah. Well, I even remember, so at the beginning of this year, I was traveling and I had a lot of weird encounters with men because I was traveling yeah. alone. And so I was hashtagging shit men ask me 19 because there were just like too many stories in a row. And one of them was I was standing in line and this man I do not know turns to me and asks, do I need to take off my belt? or like my watch or something like that. And I was just like, I don't know, you can ask the TSA agent. And he was like, 
oh, no, that's okay. I don't want to waste their time. And the implication there being, Mm -hmm. right, like, okay, but my time is worth wasting. And also, like, I'm not an expert. So, like, if anyone was going to know and actually be helpful, it would for sure be the TSA people. When I remember you posting this, because several men jumped in saying, he probably just wanted to talk to you because you're pretty. Right. Like this is, maybe he was just trying to hit on you. Maybe he was just trying to whatever, which is also a waste of my time. And also I'm very gay. So. Well, and, and the thing that I have had, and I've lost followers and I've lost friends over this, this conversation is you're not entitled to women's time because you find them interesting. Right. And so and I got into this because I had been street harassed and I started keeping an online diary about being catcalled and about different strange men approaching me Mm -hmm. because I used to walk a mile and a half to work. And during this mile and a half walk, I would say once a week, I made the walk probably four to five times a week. But once a week, a stranger would stop me and either do something um, aggressive or, or something that seemed benign. Right. But the idea was that the fact that I caught his interest trumped my desire to not interact. And this idea is that men are entitled to your time because you made them interested. Right. So that's on you now to deal with their feelings. And I had posted about this and kind of posted a very long post about why men, if you see women out on their own, Leave them alone. And men were irate about this idea. Um, and this, and, and someone uh, I knew from my hometown actually unfollowed me over this. He's like, well, what is the best way to, and I, I was talking about how I was waiting at a bus stop and a man like physically prevented me from getting on the bus because he wanted to know my name. And I said that I found him threatening and he's like, I'm not threatening you. And I think, uh, number one, pro tip, men, if you're trying to flirt with a woman and you find yourself shouting at her, I'm not threatening you, maybe you should go home and not talk to women for a good week. At least. Um, Maybe read some books on feminism. Maybe just don't, just don't, just don't. Um, But this man's point was, well, what would have been the correct way to approach me as I'm trying to get on a bus? And I said, none, like, no. And the idea is do not approach me. Right. And so this idea that because he wanted to, there had to be some way he got to. And I think this is something, hashtag not all men, hashtag not all white men, but I think this is something that happens when you are in the dominant group, is the idea that something you want is not something you are entitled to just blows people's minds. Right. Because it's not a message that you hear very often when you're in positions of privilege and power in certain spaces. And in the case of cis white men, it's like all the spaces. Right. Including online. Right. Well, and as someone who is a white woman who studies race, I think that's something that I want to be really critical of myself. Like what spaces am I taking up when I want to talk critically about race? Because I want to make sure I'm not shouting over women of color doing the same work I'm doing. Right. Um, and I want to make sure that I'm supporting their work and I'm promoting their work above my own in a lot of cases. Cite black women. Hashtag cite black women and follow their podcast. It's incredible. It's so good. We highly recommend it. They are really active on Twitter and you can find their podcast there. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you want to bring up? Maybe some some shout outs to other organizations, given that we're talking about site black women here sure, um, sure. or artists or other people that are doing work in this area that you want to really highlight. 
Right. Yeah. So I feel like uh, my main area is actually social movements. And we didn't get too, too much into to that because I got very, this is, this is very much my lecture style too, is like, here's what we're going to talk about today. And then I kind of get sidetracked on other things that are equally important. But one of the things I really do want to promote is the Sight Black Women podcast. They're episode nine. So season one, episode nine is actually a session that was presented at the American Sociological Association that is all about the importance of citing Black women, what that means, who started it, and what that does for not just sociology, but really any discipline you're working in to acknowledge the achievements of uh, marginalized women, especially. But when you center marginalized women, everybody wins. Everyone is boosted up. And we're also addressing gaps in, I don't want to say the canon, because I think the canon is a whole can of worms, but the canon mainstream, the mainstream Um, things that you typically think of. Right. So, so to say there is a mainstream is to kind of deny the fact that we get to decide what's mainstream. And so I want to give a shout out to the women who are on the site, black women uh, podcast, because I think it would be a mistake to reference the episode and not reference them by name, which is kind of their whole point. So that would be Dr. Whitney N.L. Pirtle, Dr. Kristen Smith, Dr. Crystal Marie Fleming, Dr. Tressie McMillan Cottom, and Zakia Luna. And her work has been really important for me. Uh, that will be heavily cited in my dissertation. And I guess I should plug my own work, which is forthcoming. I have a work called After the March, Rachel Einwohner. That's all about Instagram and the Women's March and how, how social movements uh, have translated to online platforms. So that work is out at Sociological Forum. Uh, Which article. is so cool. Congratulations <laughs> on having Thank like, you. actual publications out there. That's like, as grad students, that's like the gold star for like your careers. Like I have publications, but it just, it goes to show how, how highly academics think about having publications. Yeah. And it's a big deal when you finally get one because it's not easy very hard. But then some people are doing the real work, which is in podcasting, like Abigail Naraki, reaching, no, you're reaching like real people. Not that people who read articles aren't real people, but I wonder. I mean, yeah, one of my reasons for starting this podcast is I wanted to be able to introduce the world of academics to the world of everyday life, because I think that, you know, I mean, you and I talk about this a lot, But anyone who's outside our computer lab doesn't really get exposed to these kinds of conversations Mm -hmm. about like, yeah, like this happened to me and I know it made me uncomfortable, but I also have this like long history of studying gender and like online presence and stuff like that to understand why these things are so problematic. So when we were talking about how centering Black women and marginalized voices really elevates everyone. It made me think of a song by Blood Orange called By Ourselves. And it starts off, it's like a slow jam vibe at the beginning. And then at the end is this like amazing spoken word about, you know, acknowledging that women that are, you know, pitted against each other and and supposed to be seen as competing in the same arena for the same audience, for the same whatever, aren't actually competing at all. And that's, you know, we need to reframe this as a more collaborative thing. Like if you have women of color in prominent places, that is success. You and I are in, you know, in grad school together, but I don't see you as my competition. 
and you've said this before a lot, we, we succeed in clusters, right? So the I fact was going to just say that. Yes. <laughs> so the fact that, you know, that you are doing well, isn't something that is threatening to me, but rather is exciting for me because like, I get to learn from your success. And then like from your success, I also get to, you know, pave my own pathway to success. And then that like is able to elevate so many people. When I think, and I think that idea of that fear that if you are a woman similar to me and you succeed, that takes from me, I think that comes from, right. But that comes from a society that makes us insecure from the get go. And so the idea that I could be valid and you could be valid at the same time and take the, the front stage at the same time is so against what we have seen time and time again. Right. And so I think it's something that you really have to learn. And I have been really blessed because, in part because I've actively sought this out, but in part because I've been able to find them, finding really amazing women mentorship. And that doesn't exist in every institution still in 2019. Right. And I mean, if you go outside academia, it can be equally as rare, right? Like we see a disproportionate number of CEOs are not women, you know, and women of color, even fewer and things like that. So like getting those, those managerial leadership roles and those models that are women and women that, that occupy similar social spaces as you can be difficult to varying degrees depending on what social locations you occupy. Well, I think that brings me to maybe another recommendation is if they don't exist at your institution, find a way to bring in, especially women of color in positions of power into your life, consume the media that they're producing, you know, follow their podcasts, listen to them online, find people that you can listen to that are different than you and that occupy spaces of power and authority. It can be difficult to find a woman mentor and it can be really difficult to find a woman of color in a position of authority to get advice from. And often you don't want to overburden them with needing emotional labor or needing mentorship because they're already really tapped out. Mm -hmm. being that there are so few. So that's why I would really recommend consuming the media and downloading the articles and supporting them through subscriptions in a way that doesn't drain their resources, if you can. Well, we have said a lot here. Yeah, I, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. I agree. We've covered a lot of ground. So we'll be right back in just a second with That's Rad. Okay, so here are a couple, a handful of things that we think are super rad, hence the name of the segment, That's Rad. Okay, I'll jump in, I'll jump in. So I want to recommend everyone listen to Black Cat Harriet. She is, I think, today's Baba Yaga is what I'm going to go with. I don't even know who the old Baba Yaga uh, is. Baba Yaga is not a musical artist, but is a witch who lives in a walking house. Yes. Uh, so this, so Black Cat Harriet is a woman who is currently on tour. She's one of my good, good friends. And I did actually some of her album art for her new album, Dead Things. And she sings about the mythic woman, but also violence and womanhood. She has a background in psychology and she worked in a couple battered women's shelters and she worked with at-risk youth. And so she kind of boils down this like very emotional time in her life and processes what it means to be kind of an archetypal woman. And she also has several just very funny songs, including one about uh, two little boys who accidentally blow up their dog. 
<laughs> it sounds a lot darker than it is. No, it sounds exactly as dark as it is. Is but... it like the Instagram? Like, it's, this is terrible, but it's on Instagram, so it's happy. Yeah, it's super great. Um, she, she's fabulous, and uh, I would say her number one song is either Celeste or Pearl Diver, and I would start with that. Yes. Okay, so this is like an oldie but a goodie. My first thing that I just want to say is rad. Recently, I had the opportunity to see Wicked on Broadway. And y'all, if you ever get that chance, 100% take it. I realize it's not accessible to everyone. I happened to be in New York for a conference. And that conference was paid for in part by my department. So like, obviously very privileged to be able to go and do that. But I've been listening to the soundtrack like nonstop since then. And it's just made me feel so powerful. Like, yes, we are all defying gravity out here. So, and like, when you're talking about witches, I was like, yes, this is really powerful and out of mind, witches. I got you. Literally, the witches. Yeah, um, The Wizard and I is my favorite right now. And I love it so much. Yeah, so my next rad thing is gonna be my parents. I realized partway through saying my beautiful sweet dad said a dumb thing, that I also know that they love and support me enough that they're probably listening just want to make sure that I put it on audio record that they have been fabulous and supportive. And I feel really lucky that I have a family that's supportive. And I hope all of you take time to kind of acknowledge and appreciate whatever your supportive family is, whether that's biological or found family. And I think especially in troubled political times, it's nice to touch base with people and just be like, hey, like we haven't talked in a while, but uh, you're really great and you make it easier to exist in this political and climate climate. Yes, I would also like to say that I love your parents so much. And uh, I have a loaf of bread. Your dad makes his own bread from scratch, which yeah. I think is amazing. That's one of his like trademark skills. And he makes dirt bread for Abby. Yeah, dirt, again, dairy free. Throw back to the last episode when I introduced that term to y'all. Yeah, and there's a loaf there's like a half a loaf in my freezer right now. Like I'm finally home so I can eat it. Yeah, I have a good, good supportive dad. So he's pretty rad. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a great, that's rad. Okay. My last one for the day, I think is going to be, so I read a really interesting article today about one of the episodes in the most recent season of Queer Eye, which is Ooh. season four. Yes season four, um, talking about the disabled community's response to the episode with the man who is uh, in a wheelchair and the ways in which the show and like the edits of the show and the story around the show get portrayed in a way. And I mean, the episode is called Disabled But Not Really, which is a nod to this man's organization, but kind of complicating the relationship between the disabled community and the portrayal of the community or issues within the, the disabled community in the confines of this episode, right? And like, you know, people are saying, you know, the episode can only do so much and it's really great that the episode portrays him as being really empowered and empowering. But there, um, the article points out that there are some things that they do in the edits to make him look less able than he is in his space. Not to say that he is, you know, easily, like has easy access to all of his spaces, but I found it like really fascinating. And so I just want to encourage y'all to continue to complicate those intersectional storylines you're hearing about in your life. And I'll post so the talented and smart. I'll post the link to the episode or I'll or like that article that I was reading or I'll tweet it out or something so that you guys can take a look at it if you're interested. Because I know what I was saying is kind of vague. So 
Elle, thank you so much for being on the pod. Where can my listeners get more from you? Oh, thank you so much. So right now, it's I am active on Twitter. I operate under the really creative title of L Rochford. Um, you can find me as Rochford L, so at Rochford L. I do forget that people follow me on Twitter, and I am always surprised when uh, people respond to my tweets. And then other than that, you can find my work through different journals. Uh, I have a paper out on intercountry adoption and race and body markets. And then I have the forthcoming piece, which should be out right now in Sociological Forum, and that's on the Women's March. Amazing, y'all. Isn't she brilliant? Isn't she great? And you love listening to her so much. I appreciate that because I recently got feedback that my voice is unpleasant to listen to. Yes, by a misogynist asshole. By three of them. Not one, but three misogynist assholes. Yeah. So kudos to you also. You're one of my rad things in that you oh, have this stop. podcast and you're a great role model. Oh my gosh. The like clusters. Clusters. Clusters of success. Well, y'all, that's our episode for this time. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye.